Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hello, everybody. Good evening. How are you doing? It looks like we've got the same uh, normal crowd here. Oh, and it's a rowdy crowd, too. A rowdy bunch. By the way, the more um, perceptive of you will notice that there's me, there's Maven, but there's no Bill. Maven, where is Bill and what have you done with him? Um, he's doing just fine. Yeah, hopefully he is doing fine. He's on vacation, right? Which yeah, the last I heard, he spent a night in Las Vegas over the weekend. Then he made a special trip out to North Dakota for a pedicure. Oh. Uh, not making that up. You can check his Facebook page. He has pictures. So I understand that North Dakota, in addition to the Badlands, is famous for their pedicures. That's news to me, but I'm happy for him. <laughs> well, I know that um, you're not feeling super well right now. That's correct. So I'm going to be hopping off and I'll be backstage, everyone. So, um, yeah, that's it. It's good to see everyone. And I'll be in the chat, though. Yes, she will be. So mind your P's and Q's in that chat, okay? Maven's coming. Hey, I like this. It's just me. I'm not sure I've ever seen this before on the show. So tonight is episode 81 of Mormonism Live. We are pleased to have back with us Alicia Franklin. Now, you may, you may remember Alicia. She was on several weeks ago. She talked about her dad, Galen Rust, who committed then was, well, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to, I think, 18 years in prison for the largest Ponzi scheme in Utah history. And what had happened is this, is that I think it was like the day before we were going to do the show and we had it all uh, planned out and there was, it was packed already. It was completely packed with information about Galen Rust and all the things that we talked about then. And I'm on the phone with Alicia and Alicia starts saying, well, have I mentioned this story to you? And she hadn't. And an hour later, she's completing telling her story to me. And I'm saying that is an incredible, incredible experience that you have had, Alicia. There's no way we can have it on tomorrow night, but I want to schedule a time in the future for you to come back on the show so you can share this story with our audience. It is unique in my experience that a person loses their faith in Mormonism, not because of the Book of Abraham, polygamy, the Book of Mormon, translation, seer stone, all the things that we normally think about, or social issues even, and that's a whole other category, or being persuaded to follow after uh, Denver Snuffer, or people who are out there uh, trying to create a movement that captures the charisma that we find described in early Mormonism. But this is a failure of the priesthood. And by that, I don't even mean a priesthood blessings. I just mean a priesthood leadership. And a thumbnail is, is that Alicia had this hugely traumatic experience in her life. And she was casting about trying to find help 
from leadership because she's approaching it from a TBM point of view, which is the leaders are there. They have the priesthood. They're there to help the members when they're having trouble. And what she found was failure after failure after failure after failure on both the local level as well as on the general level. And I'm talking apostle level of leadership. So without trying to give too much away, that's the story in a nutshell. Alicia, are you there? Yep. Once I can get unmuted. Hello. Thanks for having me back. You are so welcome. Well, you had such a great story that I almost insisted on bringing you back, I think. And I think <laughs> our audience is going to really like to hear what you have to say tonight. First off, you're from Alaska. You're in Alaska, yes. right? Yes. I'm not from Alaska, but yes, I claim Alaska is home for sure. Okay. And I can see that sun coming in over your shoulder. Um, <laughs> I think I'm having a first vision experience with you, Alicia, right now. And yeah. my understanding is that's going to go on till at least midnight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, we were too tired to stay up for the longest day of the year. So I don't know when the sun actually set, but even when it sets up here, it's still not, it doesn't get like dark, dark. Like you think you can still see the silhouette of things. And it's my favorite time of year. I love it up here at this time. Oh, well, wonderful. Thank you for sharing some time with us. Let me let you get to your, your, your story. Um, I think it, it, am I correct that it begins with the birth of your son? Yeah, that's kind of where the main trauma starts. But I feel like for some context, I wanted to just mention a couple things from when I was um, younger, especially growing up. And before I even get to that, I'm going to be talking a lot about mental health tonight as well. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that I don't think that um, the LDS Church is sole responsible for all of the problems with mental health with everybody in the world. And I think it's a systemic issue throughout, you know, all over our, our country with the education systems and the medical systems and even in the government and things like that. So I just want to acknowledge as I'm talking about it that my experience with my mental health and, and the experiences I had with my leaders um, dealing with, with the stuff in religion was my experience. So I again, I just want to acknowledge that I don't want to say that all problems um, with people that struggle with mental health um, illnesses or things like that solely are with the Mormon church because I don't believe that. So I just wanted to clarify that as before I start. Um, and acknowledge that I think it's a, a systemic problem. But And some of your attitudes about uh, dealing with things in life in general, and maybe mental issues in specific, came from your upbringing and your family and your parents. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so growing up, I, I grew up in Utah, in Layton, and we, I grew up on a small ranch. And my my parents kind of had two opposite ends of the spectrum of like how we dealt with problems or emotions or anything negative. Um, my dad was, he didn't want to ever deal with it. So his, like, I can't tell you how many times I heard the term suck it up and be tough. And it didn't matter what it was. If I like, I remember one day um, I got um, kicked by one of the horses and like broke some ribs. I couldn't breathe. And I came in and instead of like, oh, being really concerned, it was, oh, just be tough, you know, suck it up. And um and, oh, and actually I wasn't kicked. I was bucked off the horse and I couldn't breathe. I probably broke ribs. My dad made me go back out and get back on the horse because that's what you do. So I did. So, I mean, that was kind of the mentality of like, we don't complain because if I complain about something, then my dad's going to give me a real reason to complain about. So that was my understanding with my father and with my mother, it was kind of the total opposite. If I brought any concerns to the table, um, she would kind of tell me, oh, just look for the blessings, like find something to be grateful for and then go out and serve somebody else. Yeah. Look at so, all those ribs that didn't get broken. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, 
I didn't have a space to, um, I didn't, I didn't ever learn how to, um, deal with my feelings or emotions or my experiences in a healthy way because they were pushed to these two extremes of we're, you know, just suck it up. We're denying it over here and, oh, find something to be grateful for. And we'll sweep it under that rug over here. So there was this massive gap for me. So I, that's what I did. I, um, I remember experiencing, I didn't know it was depression at the time, but I remember around the ages of nine and 10, I remember going outside of my house, just standing on the porch and feeling just so like the world seemed gray. Like I felt sad. And, and I remember thinking like, is this it? Like, is this as good as life is ever going to get? Because I feel like I've peaked already. Like it just was so, it was depressing, but I didn't know what depression was because nobody talked about it. So then when I was about 13 or 14, that's when it came to the point where I was like, this just is weird. Like, I feel like I should be crying, but I don't have a reason, but I just feel sad all the time. And that's when I approached my mom and was like, hey, this is kind of just a weird thing that I'm experiencing. You know, what do you think about this? And she asked me, well, how long has it been going on? I was like, a long time. And she's like, well, it sounds like you have. And she was, I remember very clearly, she was folding laundry, not like even fully engaging with me. She's like, oh, it sounds like you have depression. Your dad deals with with it. I think your brother probably has it. It's just something that's genetic and you learn how to deal with it. And I was like, oh, okay. And again, keeping my dad's, you know, my dad's voice was always the voice in my head of like, you just suck it up. And I was like, okay, I guess it's, this is just one more thing I learned how to suck it up for. And I did. Um, and that's what I did. And I mean, and it wasn't like I was depressed every day. It would come and go. Sometimes it would be there for a few days. Sometimes it would be there for a few weeks. Sometimes I'd have months where I felt great. Um, but again, it was just like, all right, this is just part of my life. So the other thing I want to mention from my childhood is when I was, you know, I grew up very orthodox. And um, when I was in Young Women's, I remember having a lesson about the priesthood. And one thing that they said that was so, and I don't even know why it was such a big deal to me at the time. But I remember the bishop coming in and like the whole the whole, you know, emphasis of the lesson was how priesthood leaders are there as the mouthpiece of God to help you. So if you have any problem whatsoever, they're there to help you. And I think I even like raised my hand and asked a question around like, do you mean like if you're like if you just sin and have something you need to repent of? And he said, no, anything. If you need any help whatsoever, I'm here for you. And I, and I was like, okay. In fact, I think I even went and met with him because I was forgetting how to like, I was forgetting to read my scriptures. So it was like, how can I remember to read my scriptures every night as like a 12 year old beehive. Right. So I went and talked to him about this. So that was like my understanding of priesthood leadership was that they're there to help me if I'm struggling with anything and that they are the mouthpiece of God and they can get that direct revelation when I can't get answers for myself. So feel like that gives some context for me moving into um, the rest of my story. Yeah. And I think it's a context that most of our listeners will understand. I certainly relate to that. I hadn't thought of it from that point of view, but at one and the same time as that priesthood leaders are putting themselves up on this pedestal, they're also trying to make other people dependent on them with the result that people can feel like they are the answer to every problem. Yeah. So going through, you know, I graduated high school and I went to college and like this whole time I'm just dealing with my depression. And um, 
and I got married and like I mentioned to my husband that, Hey, this is something that I deal with. And he was like, okay, we'll work through it. You know, no big deal. But again, I never, I never went and saw anybody about it. I never. And the other thing I should mention growing up, my dad was extremely negative towards the medical industry, um, doctors, dentists, but especially anything around mental health. Um, he expressed that he had once upon a time gone to see one therapist in the church and he was awful. I mean, he just would always say like, you know, I can't even channel my father's. I'm so disconnected from him now, but like, he would just say these awful things about, you know, you know, the church and the, the LDS social services and all of this stuff. So I had implanted in me that like, if I went and asked for help that way, it wasn't okay. Like it was bad and wrong and all these things just from my upbringing. And so many I'm, people think it's a sign of weakness. Yep. Yep. That's exactly how I felt. Like if I would have had to go there, um, it would have been just, yeah, I would was so weak and I didn't want to look that way. So I just learned how to deal with it. And then, um, did there come a point in your life? Sorry. I'm, I I know the outline, which you've created and I appreciate that. So I'm anticipating where you're going, but, uh, did there come a point in your life when you were no longer able to suck it up? Yeah, that's exactly. I remember things getting tough with my first child, not because I had postpartum depression, but just because there were some challenging things with her. She had some health complications that were, difficult that I was not anticipating as a new mom. And, um, but I was still able to hold it together pretty well until my second child was born. And my husband had, he was in the military at this time. He joined six months after we got married. So we had a new lifestyle. He was in the military and, um, he had orders to go to Korea for a year. Alicia, can I ask how old you were when you got married? I was four. Let's see about this. Four days shy of turning 21. I was 20. Thank you. And then I had our first one very early. We were married 18 months when she was born. Um, so, yeah, I had my second. And right after he was born, two weeks after he was born, my husband was sent away. He was deployed. And my son started um, kind of showing signs of the same type of health challenges that my oldest had. He was, he had, um, oh, in fact, I'm, I'm just looking at my outline. If you want to put up the first picture, you can see him this, the day that my husband deployed, we have a picture of, yes. So this is me with my newborn son about two weeks old. He's got this loss of dark brown hair. Um, and even then, if you were to look really close, you can see on his skin, it starts to get a little, it's starting to get a little bit red and rashy. So I just thought, hey, this is um, what ended up happening with my oldest was she had food allergies. And so she was having major eczema problems and she was vomiting a lot. And so it took me some time to figure out what was going on. So with with my son, when this was starting starting to happen, I kind of assumed like, oh, the same thing is happening. Um, But instead of it, you know, as I was eliminating foods and went to the doctor and they would give us creams and whatever to try and help with eczema, it didn't get better. It only got worse. And so during this time, again, my husband's gone. I have a two-year-old and then this two-week-old baby. Um, he, I, I lost my milk. I wasn't able to nurse him anymore. We were trying to figure out what foods was causing this, but he didn't really eat. And if he did eat, he would then throw up just like his sister did. Um, and then he would scream. He would scream 
for hours on end, especially at night. And so I didn't get much sleep. And um, when I finally, I went back and forth to multiple doctors and they just kept telling me the same thing over and over that it's just a skin issue, he'll grow out of it. And when he was about um, four months old, I believe, I he was born six weeks before my nephew. And my nephew was this tiny, tiny, he was born, I think a preemie a little bit. And so he was like five pounds when he was born. And so we went to his baby blessing. And when we were there, this little boy who was so much smaller than my son, because my son was born um, just under nine pounds. Um, my nephew was this big, fat, chunky baby. And my son like just looked so sickly, like his skin was hanging off his bones. And I mean, he just, it, it was you know, it was kind of one of those things where when you're in front of it all day, every day, you don't notice the change. But then I had something to compare it to. And I was like, oh, my gosh, something is really wrong with this baby. Yeah. So I it was a weekend and I didn't want to go back to the same pediatrician that I'd been seeing. who kept telling me that there really was not something wrong. Um, so I, w I took him to Primary Children's Hospital. My mom drove me to the emergency room and we went into the hospital and I remember weighing him and it um this would have been in March. So November. Yeah. So he was, he was almost five months old actually. So he, we weighed him and he only weighed 11 pounds and he at one point had been up to 15 pounds, mm. but he had lost so much weight that he was down to 11 pounds. And the nurse I remember was really angry when he, he found out he's like, you know, you, how many times have you been to the doctor? And I don't know. It, it was a lot. And he's like, nobody ever commented on his weight. I was like, no, but you know, Finally, I was now in this hospital. Finally, somebody was paying attention. So if you want to put up the next picture, you can see that the next picture is of um, him in the hospital. His little red face turned to this red flaming rash from mm. head to toe. I mean, there is not a part of his body that was not covered in this rash and it would crack and ooze and itch. And I'm sure just burnt, like felt terrible. And um, notice most of his hair is gone. All of his hair ended up falling out completely. Um, so we went to the hospital and nobody really knew what was wrong. The doctors did a bunch of tests and um, realized that clearly he was malnourished and his, his weight was really low. And so they were running all of these tests trying to figure out what was wrong. And um, of course, because my oldest daughter had had some of these things, I had you know, looked into some ways to help her. And because the, again, I didn't love my pediatrician, but when you're in the military, you don't always get to choose what doctors you use. So I was looking into some other options to help her. And so I was doing some alternative things. Um, one of them was making my own formula because she was allergic to everything that was a store option. And I was making my own formula for my son as well, because I knew that worked for her. And I thought, well, if he's got similar things, it'll work for him. Well, the hospital didn't like that. They didn't like that I was making their own formula. And while I was there being challenged by almost everybody, um, one of the dietitians came in and uh, directly to my face told me that the reason my son was dying was because of what I was doing to him by what I was feeding him and how I was taking care of him. And I was like devastated. This had been going on for you know, months now, and I had done everything under the sun I could even think of to help him get better, and nothing was working, and um, hence why we were at the hospital, and they weren't even able to give me answers, but somebody, you know, told me that it was definitely my fault. Yeah, right. They can't give you any help, but what you're doing is wrong. Yes. <laughs> so that was a little bit challenging, and um, 
they put him on IVs and liquid vitamins and minerals to help boost him up. And they put him on some steroid cream. And within three days, he had gained enough weight through the IVs that they said, you know, he's made really good progress. We're going to we're going to let you go. You know, we're going to send you home. And but we're going to have you follow up with the NICU doctor. So I took him home and um, hit within within a week, he had lost all the weight he had gained plus more and his rash came back with a vengeance. So I think we have one more picture now that shows um, this was after we got home. See how tiny he is. I mean, he's just totally deteriorating and he doesn't look that bad because the camera's far away, but he's still got that rash all over his whole body. So that's when he was at five, five months old. We're now home from the hospital, but we're going back and forth to see a NICU doctor um, just to continue to get help, even though he wasn't a NICU baby. So to try and make this really long story short, um, I ended up going in multiple times. We tried all sorts of different formulas. Nothing helped. He just kept losing weight. The doctor there told me that I was most likely going to have to plan a funeral because he was losing weight so rapidly and we could not figure out what was wrong. And she said, is there any way you can get your husband home from his deployment so he might be able to be there if this happens? And that was like the most devastating news I had. Like, I was like, I mean, it was so surreal. And so I call, I got a hold of my husband again, the time difference. He's in Korea. Not that we could talk all the time anyway, but I got a hold of him and he said, go in and fill out this paperwork so I can come home. And I had to go to the base anyway. So I went through the process of filling out the paperwork to get emergency leave. And somehow through this process, there was a woman who thought that I was starving my son to death so that my husband could come home. And she called Child Protective Services. And then she reported it to somebody on the base who then contacted what's called the Family Advocacy Group. And they also opened a case against me because they believed that I was not a fit mother to take care of my child because of what was happening. And all that was the doctors had um, prescribed him with was failure to thrive, which is a way of saying that this baby's getting worse and we don't know why. Right. So then I got, you know, I went through the process of getting the paperwork I had to face the, you know, the people from DCFS and, and was dealing with that. So I do all this paperwork so my husband can try and get home. And my husband has to go and get a final signature from his commanding officer to get him on the airplane so he can come home. And he goes in and um, his commanding officer looks him straight in the face and says, you know, Airman Franklin, your wife's been lying to us. And I don't think you even know who she is. And I'm not letting you go home because your wife's lying. And so he then called me the next day and said, I'm so sorry, but like, I can't, I can't leave. They will not let me leave. If he would have come home, he would have been AWOL, which he could have been prosecuted and thrown in prison. So I'm just like, I mean, all of this is happening. I'm trying to figure out how to keep my son alive. I have a two-year-old daughter who's just being passed around all these different places who has her own health issues to deal with as well. And I mean, it's just, it was chaos. So I did what I was taught to do really well. And that was suck it up and be tough. And so I shoved all of it away and I did what any mother would do. And I gave everything of me to make sure that my child survived. And thankfully, bless a dear friend, called in a favor to get in to see a naturopath who was the first person to actually give me some answers about what was actually happening with my son. 
which um, in essence, his small intestines had shut down. And so even though he was eating, he wasn't absorbing. So he would eat, but he was still starving to death. So we were, we did a bunch of things and put, again, put him on some really intense vitamins and minerals and some, or like just, there were lots of things and it was a very slow, arduous process, but he did recover. So um, I think we have a picture now when he's a year old. And so that's my son at a year old. In fact, probably a year and a month. Um, he was just to the point where he could sit up by himself. Um, he's not walking. He was not, in fact, I don't even know if he was crawling by this point, but he could finally sit up by himself. Um, so it took a really long time. And if you look at that picture closely, you can still see he's got some um, blemishes on his skin, which he had for years. His cheeks would be pretty rashy and on his arms and some parts of his legs. So it was a, it was a long time. So once I got the state to realize that I wasn't trying to kill my son and we fought the Air Force, thankfully I had to hire my own attorney because I couldn't use the free services through the Air Force because I would have been suing the Air Force. Um, so anyway, there were all these things on top of trying to make sure that he was okay uh, that I was dealing with. And again, there was just no sleep and he just cried and screamed and all the time because he was so uncomfortable. So... There was this year of, of just pure hell. And, um, and then my husband came home. And the next picture is of we were actually, oh, actually, good. See, this is why we have the outline, so I don't remember. This is my son probably about six months ago. He is healthy and happy and brilliant, even though the doctor told me if he survived, he'd probably be brain dead. Um, my son's not brain-dead. He is a freaking genius and is going to probably control the world sometimes. He's fabulous. So. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. I remember when you were telling me the story the first time and I had to interrupt you and say, is there a happy ending here? I mean, where are we going with this story? Is it to the, the graveyard? I know. I always, it's again, when you go through something traumatic, your brain like places things in such a weird way. So I'm glad we had this picture so I could, yes, he is, he is fantastic. Physically, very healthy. Mentally, we still have some trauma that we deal with, and he is working through that. Um, but yes, fab fantastically healthy little boy. Um, so at the end of this year, um, my husband actually got to come home two weeks early, and he surprised us. So this is in front of the Bountiful Temple. Um, my friend set up pictures of us. I didn't know he was coming home. She said it was just to be a family photo. Um, and we had a picture of my husband as well. And she set this up. And so I'm standing in front of the doors. That's what that first um, shot is of. And then the doors open and I see my husband. Whew. And clearly I got really emotional. And in the third frame, you can see that I dropped one of my two children <laughs> because I was so, it was one of those moments where it was such a long, traumatic, terrifying experience where I was just in fight or flight all the time, just figuring out how to survive. That when I finally saw my husband, I collapsed. Like I physically collapsed. I couldn't even stand up. So then we the next picture. So there's snow a, on the ground there. Is that snow? Yes. So he came home. Let's see. It's the end of 2012. It was the very, it was, it was the end of November. Yeah. Of 2012. Of 2012. Okay. Yes. So yeah, then he came home and life and in my mind, I'm like this hug right here, all the, all the tears, all everything that happened while he was gone. I just let it all go. Right. That's how it works. We go through hard things. We cry and it's over. That's what I believed. Right. So my husband comes home. Everything's going to be grand. My life is going to be fantastic again. And that was complete BS. 
So shortly after he came home, we moved to South Carolina on, we had orders. We went to South Carolina and I started to just crumble and, um, mentally I was just having a hard time functioning, even getting out of bed because I wasn't just dealing with depression anymore. I was now dealing with severe anxiety and I didn't really understand it because again, nobody had taught this to me. It was not talked about in my home. And there was no, like, it wasn't something that was talked about at church or at school or anything. Like I was, it was so weird. And, uh, was your, my, was your husband saying anything about that? My husband, not at the beginning. I think that because I was really good at being like, oh no, like I'm good. I'm okay. You know, mm-hmm. he was like, okay. And then because he's in the military and PTSD is a big deal there, they go through briefings after they come home from deployments of, Hey, keep a lookout for your wingman. Is this symptoms that are happening? Like if this, you know, they, they, they're trained and exposed to this type of stuff. So honestly, I think it was a day he had gone probably within 48 hours of going through one of these debriefings. He came home and, um, and I think I had had some major panic attack because he had asked, where's the oats. And that was one of the foods that my son was allergic to. And I lost it. I was like, we don't have oats in this house. Like, I mean, I had this ridiculous over the top reaction that mm-hmm. he didn't have any, like, no context for because he wasn't there. But he realized, like, okay, this is a problem. So he sat me down and he said, Alicia, I think you have PTSD. And I was like, no, I don't. And he's, and, and I said, and I looked at him and I was like, like, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, are we thinking about the same thing? And he said, yes. And I was, and I kind of, like, was irritated. And I got, I looked at him and I said, People who go to war come back with PTSD. I do not have PTSD. And so I just went into this like really deep denial because I couldn't be weak by me acknowledging that I couldn't suck. Like I had overcome everything by sucking it up. So the fact that this thing I couldn't handle was awful. But then on the other side, if I did admit to it, I didn't have a clue where I like, what was I supposed to do? I I had no idea. Like, what do you do about this stuff? So I just, again, I dealt with it. Um, My husband encouraged me to go see um, the chaplain on base. And that was a, that was a struggle. Like I finally did it, but it was like terribly. I mean, I, I was just like hyperventilating the whole time. I could barely talk because the fact that I had to talk about what happened was so horrific. Um, And he actually, after talking to the chaplain, and realizing that, okay, like maybe this won't kill me. He convinced me to go talk to our Bishop. So with Bishop number one, <laughs> there's, there's going to be a list in this story with Bishop there's at least number four one, bishops in this story <laughs> Yeah, with Bishop number one. Um, I sat down and again, like was just terrified to even talk about the details. So my husband shared a lot of the story while I was just kind of in the room. And then essentially I kind of said like, you know, I need some help. And to, to be truthful, he was, um, I, I appreciated his response. I, I was in so much trauma that I can't like remember everything accurately, but I know that he said, I will, I will make some phone calls. I will look into this for you. But, and I probably subconsciously did this on purpose. I went and saw him weeks before I knew we were getting transferred. So I may have self-sabotaged this on my own by like saying, I don't want to deal with this anyway. So we left before I could ever get help. So I don't honestly know if that bishop followed through 
or not, but he gave me a positive response in that moment. How many weeks were you there after the meeting with the bishop? It couldn't have been more than two or three. Okay. And in those two or three weeks, did you hear anything back from the bishop following up on that? No, no. I think I remember getting a call. So I left a month before my husband did because he had to stay and do some final paperwork. And I went to a wedding and stuff in Utah for my sister and whatever before we got to Alaska. I think I, I briefly remember him making a phone call and saying, hey, by the way, Bishop so-and-so actually got back to me. So it would have been at least a month later. He's like, but you're gone. So we'll just have to deal with it when we get to our new ward in Anch or in wherever we were at. But it ended up being Anchorage. So it sounds like a glacial pace to me. It was, yeah, it was not fast by any means. Um, so we did, we moved to Alaska and um, when we got settled in our new ward, I remember getting called in, you know, they, that when you get into a new place often the bit, well, I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but in Alaska, because it's, they're smaller. If there's a new family, the Bishop often wants to like, Hey, you know, let's talk like, really let's meet you, but like, what talents do you have? So I know where to stick you, you know, right. and that was kind of more of the, the gist of it. But I remember sitting in there and he was like, you know, is there any needs or do you have anything that you need help with? And I know that I think he was probably um, asking more financial, if we were financially stable, if we needed help financially. But in this one moment, I was like, okay, I know my husband wants me to get help. I, my children deserve this because I had been, again, barely functioning as a mother. I like put all of my, like gathered all of my courage up and just blurted out like, yes, I am struggling with severe anxiety. I can, like, I just like vomited all of this stuff out and said, I need help. Is there any way that I can, you know, get help? with, and I don't even know, I, I don't think I like asked specifically to see a therapist. I just said, I need some help. And I remember him being like, so taken aback because we were sitting there all like, oh yeah, I'm really good at putting on a mask. Right. Which mm -hmm. I'm sure most um, people are when you're members of the church. Um, I was really, you know, I looked calm, cool and collected. And then all of a sudden I vomited this out. So I know he was like, what did this, what just happened? But he said like, okay, yeah, I'll, if this is what you need help with, like, I'll look into it. And I was like, okay. Like, and then I probably proceeded to have a panic attack in the car before we went home. Because even the thought of talking about this was just too much. I couldn't handle it. So we go home and I wait, thinking something's going to happen. And a week goes by and nothing happens. So I'm back at church and my husband's like, well, just, you know, bishops are busy people. And I'm like, you're right. Bishops are busy. I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. So I went and just asked him again and he didn't remember at all. Like nothing that I had said. Wait, this is Bishop number two. No, this is Bishop number one. This is this still is number still, one. Still, oh no, no, sorry. You're right. You're right. See again, I can't even keep them order. So this is, yes, this is no longer in South Carolina. We're in Anchorage. So Bishop number two. Yes. Okay. And you went back and you reminded him. Yeah. I just approached him and was like, Hey, I just wanted to check back in. If you, if you, you know, gotten any information about, you know, getting help with what I'm dealing with mentally. And he was like, can you remind me, just remind me again, exactly what it is that we're. So I started talking about it again. And he's like, oh yes. Okay. Yes. I will. I, I haven't done it yet, but I'll get on it. I was like, okay. And I feel so like embarrassed. Like I can't like, 
again, because I'm thinking here, I'm being I'm being the one that's a nuisance, right? Like, oh my gosh, I had to remind him. He didn't even remember. Maybe this isn't a big deal. Maybe I'm just the one making a big deal. Like I should be able to just handle this, right? So another couple weeks go by and I'm still seriously struggling. Like panic attacks are totally normal. Not like spending, you know, probably 15 to 18 hours a day in bed. Totally normal for me at this time. Like I was just not even, I I could not function. So my husband, again, like was like, okay, like there is something up. And so he approached the bishop. And again, the bishop didn't remember. Oh, no. Yeah. Bishop number two, the third time. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, like by the third time of him being like, oh, I don't remember. I was like, uh, like the thought of having to go in and say, talk about it again was so humiliating to me that I was like, I can't even, I can't even go there. So I told my husband, like, I got mad at him. I was like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I will just figure it out. It's okay. Clearly they don't want to help me. So just leave it alone. So because of all of the stress at home, um, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say because there was a lot of stress at home. And I also was pregnant. I don't know if I was pregnant at this time. While we were living in Anchorage, it was a two and a half year period. I had our third child and I did end up with postpartum with her. Um, but during this time, there was a lot of stress, a lot of just, you know, it was still chaos. And my husband ended up, um, he was looking at pornography very, like only like here and there. It was not like a big or addiction thing, right? However, because of how the church just talks about it, shames it, and says anytime you look at pornography, it's an addiction. Um, it was something that I was really concerned about at the time. And my husband lied about it. So really what um, I caught him in a lie and was really upset and felt very betrayed because he had lied to me. And so, of course, he's like, you know what, let's go talk to the bishop about this. I want to, you know, he wanted to just fix everything. Immediately, the bishop sees us, right? Mm. Get in immediately. And he was very, like, I totally want to acknowledge that this man in this moment was very loving and kind and, um, you know, respectful of my husband, I think. Like, I felt like that he really was there trying to help him and whatnot. Again, still from the skewed view, the lens that the church has around pornography and whatever. But um, he was very supportive of my husband. And I remember sitting there thinking, okay, like, I have a lot of feelings around this too. I feel kind of betrayed. I'm quite hurt myself. Right. Um, and there was no acknowledge. Like, I didn't even get to have a word in. He turned to me and basically said, and Alicia, your job in this is just to forgive your husband. And I was like... Okay. Okay. I guess again, like, and I wasn't even saying this to myself cynically, right? Like this was a very real thought pattern for me. It was like, okay, clearly this is really important for my husband. I need to just forgive him. And like, I need to be the one that again, pulls up my bootstraps is really tough. And I just suck it up and take it and be the good woman that I'm supposed to be, that the church has trained me to be. So I did. And can I just make a couple of comments here? As you've been talking, one thing is this, is that the bishop, bishop number two in Anchorage, forgets, forgets, forgets about you. And as you say, as soon as your husband mentions the P word, the pornography word, boom, he's in there right away. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that um, the bishop 
is pretty busy doing a lot of things and they're mostly policy. They're mostly procedural. They're mostly having meetings and executive committee meetings and all these kinds of things. They are caught up in the thick of thin things to borrow a phrase from Paul H. Dunn. And yeah, he's doing all this stuff, but this is not the important stuff. The important stuff is dealing with your members who are going through really dangerous, really problematic issues in their lives and not just forgetting about it once, twice, and even three times. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that pornography is so minor compared to what you're going through. And I don't know if there's an element of it's, oh, it's the pornography bugaboo and we've got to take care of this immediately. Or if it's the fact that it was the priesthood holder who's coming to him about a problem that the priesthood holder has. Do you have any insight into that? Honestly, I would say it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I feel like culturally inside of the church, how things are, you know, so shamed around sexuality and pornography and masturbation. Like, I think that anytime that pops up, it's like an atomic bomb. Oh no, we need to like, we need to contain this, you know? And the fact that, yeah, it was like a priestedly, you know, he's a guy and he has the priesthood and that's what the whole church is like. I mean, the church can't function unless there's these guys who are in these roles taking care of it all, or at least having the last word, in my opinion, after the women are doing it all. But that's, <laughs> that's my two cents. So, and my husband has always been somebody who's very dependable. And so again, in Alaska, when you have these smaller wards, almost everybody has one sometimes two callings. And so he would often be in these leadership positions. I believe at the time he was in the young men's presidency, if I remember correctly. So it would have been somebody who, again, was like in a leadership role. And so, yes, like we want to, we want to help. We want to take care of this. So I think it's a mixture of how church culture has just really blown out of proportion in a super unhealthy manner, you know, how they deal with things around sexuality and masturbation and pornography. And then, yeah, the component of my husband being male. I, I do see uh, a similarity between the bishop not even remembering your severe emotional and psychological problems versus you in there with your husband. And the bishop sounds like he's very attentive to your husband's problems, but he doesn't even apparently recognize that you might have some emotional reaction to this whole situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he was super helpful. He would constantly text my husband these like, you know, he would find time in the day to text my husband and just like give him some like supportive scripture or like, hey, how, you know, how are you doing today? And, you know, anyway, so. Oh, my God. How did that make you feel? <laughs> now I laugh about it. But then to tell you the truth, like that was probably the beginning. Like I went into such a dark hole then and I like kind of made a vow to myself internally. Like, I'm not going to ever talk about this again because clearly nobody cares. Like I've asked for help and nobody cares about me because, and then I also downplayed what happened. I thought, I, I really started to think I must be making this up. I must be making this worse than it is because my husband who really was not in my mind, I'm like, it's a, the lie was a big deal to me. The lying was a big deal. But what was going on and how they, it was getting treated, I was like, well, apparently that's a big deal. But what's happening with me isn't a big deal. So it's it must I just must be thinking that I'm, you know, I totally downplayed it. And then I would then I would get 
angry and, and, you know, beat myself up internally when I was having a really bad day. Like, well, here I am again. Like I can't get out of bed or, you know, and I got to the point where there was a lot of suicidal ideation. Like I very specifically remember driving. I was trying so hard to fix this for myself. I cleaned up my diet. I like did everything, you know, I would, okay, let's rephrase this outside of going to a medical professional and getting medication, which again, like in my paradigm wasn't an option because of how I was raised with my parents and the being taught in the church that if you can have more faith, you'll be healed, right? If you have enough faith, Christ can heal everything. So I just kept thinking, well, I'm just not a good enough Mormon. Like I'm just not a good enough saint. Clearly I didn't read my scriptures enough. Clearly I didn't go to the temple enough, like all those things, right? So I remember like I was even going to the gym, working out regularly. I would take my little children to a gym 30 minutes away so they could play. I had somebody to watch them so I could then go work out. And I remember driving home one day thinking, why don't I just like, I'm so sick of feeling the way I'm feeling. It's not going to take much to turn the car into a semi, you know, like that's where I was at. And I just dealt with it for another three years. And I worked through postpartum with my last baby. And, um, and I just learned how to put on a really good face. And to tell you the truth, like, the only thing, the only thing that kept me like going was I didn't want to let God down. Like I could let everybody else down. I was to the point where I could have let everybody else down. But if I would have like in those moments where I was like, if I just turn the car, then I'd have to stand in front of God and be like, I just wasn't strong enough to deal with this. Mm. That was my like motivation for like, okay, I can do one more day. I can do one more day. So I'm spiraling. We end up moving from Anchorage to a sm- much smaller town four, and a half, four, four and a half hours away um, in Homer, which is down by the coast. It's a fabulous place. That's where I live now. Um, and I tried to just kind of use that move as like a, okay, like we'll just leave all this, this behind. Kind of like when my husband came home or we left South Carolina. Like, even though it wasn't working before, this is going to be the time. It'll just all go, I'll leave it all behind me. So it didn't get any better. It just got worse. And, um, at this time, my mother, of course, my husband had been contacting my mom and was like, Hey, I don't think Alicia's doing well. I don't really know what to do. I also think that it's interesting. Not even my husband really knew to point out like, Hey, maybe we should go see a professional. Right. And not that his family was ever, Hey, like therapists are evil and don't trust the church or whatever. Like my dad was. But clearly he was still kind of under that assumption of, well, we just like, that's not really what we do. We just are better Mormons, you know, like maybe do you need another blessing? Anyway. So were there a lot of blessings being given to you and also to your, your boy during this time or during the time he was not well? Probably. I remember getting a blessing from my dad and my brother at one point when I was, when I thought I had had a, I had Epstein-Barr when I was in college and I thought I had a relapse because I physically could not get out of bed one day to take care of my two children by myself. So my brother and dad came and gave me a blessing that day. I remember that, um, which knowing my dad now just is like, wow. But huh. can um, I ask you another question? Yeah. Um, did you modify your behavior? You talked about going to the gym, doing all these things, changing your diet. Did you also double down on scripture reading, prayer? Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, scripture reading, like, I was obsessed. I was, like, going through every line. And you'll see here in a minute how this gets kind of crazy. But, like, I was going through every line, like, word for word. And what does that mean? And how can I interpret this? Like, I was trying so desperately, like, to get better. And I, and I yeah, talk about praying. Like, there was one night or one day. It probably was like late morning because my husband was gone and my kids were downstairs. I probably put a movie on or something. I remember in my bedroom on the ground, like screaming up to God, like I have done everything. I have done everything you have asked me to do. Why will you not just like, I just want to feel better so I can go down and take care of my two kids. Like I was, it was such a struggle. And again, it was this, if I'm sure those of you who have experienced trauma, like it's a compounded thing. I mean, when you have depression and severe anxiety and then you're bouncing from like, you know, having panic attacks, I mean, it takes a huge toll on your physical body. And so it wasn't, and, and I think this is a struggle for those who do not experience mental health. When you're on the outside, like my husband was, it can be really easy to seem like, why can't you just snap out of it? You know, like, why can't you just like change your mind and, you know, put a smile on your face? But like, it's a real physical thing. Like, you can't just snap out of it. Right. And suck it up. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I was trying, I was, you know, of all the people on the planet, I was doing the best I could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would have made my father proud in that moment. And anyway. I'm taking it that you're doing all this stuff with the the scripture reading, with the prayer in order so that God will heal you so you can do the things that God wants you to do, like take care of your two children. Exactly. Because the whole purpose of me being a woman is to be a mother in Zion, right? That's the whole reason I exist is to, you know, support my, my, you know, priesthood holding husband and to bring, you know, souls of, you know, these beautiful children into the world so I can build up the kingdom of God. Like, yeah, it was. And going to church every Sunday, I would hear talks about, you know, how you get blessings for being faithful and like, you know, all the things that we hear. And I would immediately apply it to my circumstance of mental health. But again, at the time, it was just instead of acknowledging that, oh, yeah, I really do have post-traumatic stress disorder. I really am dealing with depression. I really do have some severe anxiety. It was I just really am not strong enough. And that's really pathetic. Like, Alicia, come on. Like, you can do better. You know you can do better. And anybody can always look at the church and say that because the list is unending. Right. You know, at any point, I could have picked up a, a talk from a previous prophet and read it and found one more thing that, oh, this priesthood leader who, if he was a prophet, that means anything he says is equal to a commandment. So I haven't been doing this. That's why I haven't been blessed. That's why I'm still struggling because it was this never ending list. So that, I mean, that's what I was doing to myself. So you're not the only one, by the way. <laughs> and also, also, I think it just occurs to me that Bishop number two, the reason he didn't have time to get back to you is because he was dealing with all the pornography problems of the priesthood holders in the word. <laughs> That's Probably. what it was. It wasn't just her husband. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Was it around this time, by the way, that you happened upon a video presentation by Elder Holland? Honestly, like when I was in Homer, it was probably around this time. I can't remember if I saw this first or my mom introduced me to a podcast by Michael Stroud. And that was kind of a big deal, too. 
But okay. the Holland thing, I think, came around the same time. Okay, well, with that caveat, let's pretend it came first or around the same time. We'll go to it first, if that's all right, because yeah. would you please introduce this? Because you are in the depths of despair. You have no hope or any hope that you have comes from increased faithfulness, increased scripture study, increased um, observance of the commandments. It's not working for you. And there is a beacon of light that you see in something that Elder Holland said. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah. 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 So one night I was just laying in bed, trying again, probably after I had studied my scriptures for an hour or more and prayed till my knees were falling asleep. Um, I was on my phone and, you know, something popped up on somewhere, probably Facebook. And it was this clip of Elder Holland. And he was talking about, um, I think the concept of like that everybody has to go through their own Gethsemane. And he was really emotional. And I think this was also Wait, this... emotional Elder Holland. <laughs> yeah. And I think this came out around the same time where he gave a talk and I used to know the title, but I won't remember anymore. But he talked about this concept of those who are struggling with mental health will have some relief when they're, this sounds terrible, but when they're dead, like on the other side, when we're standing in front of Christ, right? Like we'll finally have relief. So that at the time that talk was like touching to me. And I think this was around the same time. So I was like really drawn to Elder Holland. So, and this is why. Here is a minute from I this. I think the Sorry, sorry, Maven. Yeah, this is just a minute from the talk. It's like a four minute plus clip. And I've taken out a minute and a half. And I think that what struck me so powerfully about this, I would have had a completely different reaction to this just watching it. But when I'm trying to watch it through your eyes and from the place that you were inhabiting when you saw it, I can see why you would be drawn to this and think this man gets it. He understands. He can help. is always come follow me the early disciples said where do you live and he said come and see just come and watch me you're welcome where I live you're welcome where I go you can listen to what I say just come follow me but what we have to be fully prepared for is that some of that journey will be into at least the borderlands of Gethsemane and at least somewhere in the shadow of Calvary. I do not know any other way that that can happen. My convictions and my feelings for the Savior of the world have been born in the most desperate hours of my life. When I wondered whether the sun would ever come up again. Seemed to come up for other people. Seemed to come up every morning for everybody else I could see. But not for me. Now it isn't always like that. And it's not supposed to always be like that. And we're a little self-pitying if we act like it's always like that. But some parts of the discipleship require that walk, basically his walk. How did that strike you when you saw that, Alicia? God, like even just watching it again, I just, 
I remember watching that the first time and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because I was like, okay, like this man gets it. He talked about this place of feeling like the sun's never going to rise again. And that like, you know, when he says, you know, things get better for other people, but for not for me and hearing it from a disciple who at the time I was like, he knows Christ, right? I truly believed at this time that like this man sits in front in the presence of Christ, speaks with him regularly. Like, so, okay, then maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe if I'm suffering this much, clearly I'm on the right track because that's what he's talking about, but it still hurts really bad. So maybe if I reach out to him, he'll, he'll get it. And he'll tell me how, like, so where do I go from here? Like, that was kind of my thinking, like, hearing his words kind of, I think, validated my own self-destructive thoughts of like, because if I'm really feeling this much pain, if it's really this dark for me, then based off of what he said, I'm doing, I'm doing it right. Because that means I'm, I'm one of these stalwart saints who have to go through this like outskirts of Gethsemane, which again, sounds so twisted, but like in my mind, I was desperately trying to make sense of this experience that nobody was helping me with. And this man who I had so much, you know, love for because he's really great with emotion, right? Like I thought he would get it. And so. So if we stop right there, because I know you're going to write a letter. Yes. To Elder Holland. But in order to give context for what you put into the letter, now go ahead and tell us about, is it Michael Stroud? Yeah, Michael Who's Stroud. Michael Stroud and how did you stumble upon him and your experience there? So many times when I would talk to my mom and kind of describe how I was feeling, um, I think that, so she, my aunt sent her a podcast and said, hey, you might be interested in this. So my mom listened to it. And when Michael Stroud was talking in that podcast, he mentioned some things that my mom was like, oh, my daughter's experiencing this. So she was like, Alicia, you should listen to this podcast. And it was all about devils and unclean spirits. And Michael Stroud had, I don't know if he still has because he's been excommunicated, but had kind of a cult-like following. And he was really big into, I don't even know the right term. Like we talked a lot about, or he talked a lot about like um, the second anointing and um, having these like really deep doctrinal stuff that a lot of it I hadn't even heard of before. Um, he, there was a, oh, I'm not even going to remember the book. There was a book that he was really supportive of. And anyway, I'm sure that there are some people out there who know who Mike Stroud is, but he also worked for CES for 30 years and uh, had served several missions. And um, anyway, so I got this podcast sent to me and I listened to it and all of the stuff I was experiencing with my depression and PTSD and things like that. Um, because to tell you the truth, I was without having any understanding of what it was, I would have moments where I would kind of go into psychosis and I wasn't really in my own mind. I would see things, hear things. Um, anyway, so in his podcast, he talked a lot about devils and unclean spirits and how, you know, that you can be possessed or influenced by these, these things. And, I was desperately searching for something to make sense of my experience so I could figure out how to navigate it and get out of it that I like soaked it up like a sponge. And at the end of the podcast, he said, if any of you are experiencing or struggling with this or are like, you know, just, I don't know, like it was, if you need help, here's my number. And he literally put his like personal phone number on there. 
And I was shocked because I knew by some of the things that he said that he had several hundred people like listening to him. And I was like, wow, that's kind of a big deal for him to just throw that number out there like that. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to call him because he said he offered it up. I'm going to call him. So I called this phone number and left a voicemail because it didn't go, nobody answered. And I want to say within like 10 or 15 minutes, I got a call back and it was his wife. And she said, she said, Alicia, I just got your voicemail. Like very emotionally poured her heart. Like I just, I, I can tell in your voice and the voicemail that you're struggling and I'm so glad you reached out and we want to help. And, and then she continues to tell me that Mike was, um, they lived on like, I don't remember where Arizona, Nevada, he was driving back from jury duty and he was in a, um, Oh God, the native American land. He was in a reservation, a reservation. Thank you. He was driving through the reservation in an area where there wasn't service. So she said, there's no way you'll be able to get him right now. But as soon as he gets home, I know he will want to talk to you. And he did. It was like, took him like an hour or something to get home. And he called me and we talked. Yeah. And it was the, the thing that was, and probably why I embraced kind of the things that he said too, was here's this man and his wife who didn't know me from Adam or Eve. And, uh, and they like immediately. And here I am like other side of the country. I live up in Alaska. We're not even close, right. In close proximity to each other, but he didn't hesitate to call me, to talk to me, to, you know, ask me questions. How can I help you? And, um, Anyway, I just, so he was the one that I kind of clung to for a little bit. I was like, here's somebody that, that support, that's giving me some sort of support. And then of course I, we continue to listen to his stuff. Um, but during this time, I also, so he gave me some information. I started listening to more of his podcast and I started diving really deep into if this is devils and unclean spirits, why isn't anybody talking about it at church? By the way, I was the gospel doctrine teacher. So I thought, I'm going to talk about this because I get to teach the lessons. So if this is in here somewhere, then I'm going to find it because I haven't heard about this before. So I started doing research, like, I mean, obsessively researching, trying to make, again, make sense of my reality. And um, there was, there's stuff all over the place that talks about, you know, devils and unclean spirits and possession and things like that, especially in the early church and in the Bible, in the New Testament. You know, it talks about Christ casting out devils all the time. So I thought, okay, then this must be true because not only is it in the early church, but it's like right here in the New Testament with Christ. So that must be what's wrong with me. So that was kind of my like, again, I figured it out, but now I got to figure out what to do with it. I still need help. So after doing all of this research, still struggling with my PTSD, still having suicidal ideation, I decided to write a letter. And yes, I fully knew that I was like way over jumping. I knew that protocol was you go talk to your bishop and you go talk to the state president. But after my experience, like I didn't trust that process. And not to mention, I didn't really care for the bishop in my ward at the time. So in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I believe that God really loves me. I believe that Elder Holland is going to really love me. So I'm just, we're just going to go there. And so he's going to understand. Absolutely. I mean, I just absolutely. saw the video. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent hours, which you may not believe if you actually read the letter, but I spent hours compiling this eight page, I think it's eight paged, somewhere between six and eight pages typed letter expressing my story and listing 
all sorts of references and quotes and things regarding this must this must be what I'm experiencing as devils and unclean spirits because that's the only thing that makes any sense and I need help. How do I stop this from happening? How do I keep myself safe and my children safe? And I sent this letter off. And I also sent it to President Nelson at the time as well. He was not the prophet, but I sent a, this, uh, the exact same letter, one to Holland, one to Nelson. And the reason I sent it to Nelson was because he, I don't know, I was just really drawn to him. I think he had said some things in a few of his recent addresses that really touched me again, around what I was experiencing. And so I thought, you know what, I really admire him. And it, to tell you the truth, it could have been because he was going to be the next prophet. So I'm like, you know what, he definitely is going to have some like, inspiration direct from God for me, because he's going to be the next prophet. Alicia, this is a very long letter. We're certainly not going to read all of it. I have read all of it. The first thing I noticed was, I didn't see any spelling or grammatical errors <laughs> whatsoever. And, you know, I'm just attuned to see those things. And it's a it's a big pain in the, the took us for many people. But I noticed that and I immediately intuit that this is an educated person who's writing this letter. I'm trying to put myself in President Nelson's and Elder Holland's position if they ever even read this thing. But the person who did read it, this is not um, a crazy person in terms of being strange or demented. In fact, it starts off this way. If I can just read the, the first couple of lines, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Dear President Nelson and Elder, Elder Holland, I'm guessing that's because he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. Yes. About a year ago, I felt very impressed to write this letter to both of you. I talked myself out of it. But then recently, I saw a clip of part of a series that Elder Holland created relating to mental illness. And the spirit chastised me for not listening the first time and very strongly and directly told me a second time to write this letter. So here we are. I have suffered with mental illness for years. And then it goes on. And I want to highlight that part. I have suffered with mental illness for years because I think it's important to understand this is what is in the letter. This is the main thrust of this letter that's going to church leadership. It is a plea for help. It's obviously coming from a place of deep pain and longstanding pain. And you go through a lot of the story that you've already told our audience tonight with your um, your son and all the things that happened there. And then you get to the part where you're quoting things from the scriptures and from prophets in the LDS tradition, dealing with unclean spirits, evil spirits, demons being cast out. And at the end, you're asking questions. How do evil spirits get into our bodies in the first place? I know that I'm not perfect, but I do my very best to be obedient and stay worthy of all of the covenants that I have made in the temple. And you go on like that. You have very, very logical questions to ask within this framework of Mormons, uh, Mormonism's belief of evil spirits. And I think it would probably be broader than just Mormonism. I think it would be Christianity in general with this belief about evil spirits as it's reflected in the New Testament. Of course, Mormonism picks that up the first miracle in the Mormon church was an exorcism. And so you ask a few other questions about this. And um, let's see. The last paragraph. Please give me some guidance and direction on how to keep myself protected as well as my children from Satan's power. 
And how can we begin to have this conversation out in the open? To drag into daylight this hellish influence and unfold it into the world in all, in all its soul-destroying, diabolical, and horrid colors. Now, of course, it's purple prose, but you're quoting someone else and probably Joseph Smith on that. It might be Joseph Fielding Smith, actually. Joseph Fielding Smith. There are more than I that just need help. I can't believe that I am the only one asking warmly Alicia Franklin. So when was it that you sent that letter? There's no date on it that I can see, but can you ballpark it for me? It would have been probably five years. Let's see, how old's my old or my youngest? She just turned eight. Yeah, it probably would have been about five, five years ago. Okay, five so you sent that ago. off, and I'm guessing with all sorts of hope and expectation and waiting by the mailbox every day for a response. Yeah. Yeah, I I had really high hopes, but I also knew I like broke the rules. So I was also I, I was aware of that. But I did get a letter back. And um what did Elder was, Holland say? Excuse me, what did Elder Holland say? Absolutely nothing. In fact, I don't even know if the letter made it to Elder Holland or President Nelson because the response I got was from to tell you the truth, I was so mad I ripped it up and, and threw it away. It was from somebody um, in the presidency of the 70. I don't know if it was the president himself or one of his two counselors, but it was from the office of the presidency of the 70. And they sent a letter back and it was like maybe half a page. And they said, we're sorry to hear about your struggles. Essentially, here's all of the primary answers. Stay close to Christ. We will pray for you. And that's Nothing. what I got. Nothing says we care about you more than handing off your letter to a flunky to give a boilerplate response. Yeah. How did you feel about it? <laughs> I had tears, raging, hot, steaming tears coming down my face. Like, yeah, oh. my husband gave it to me. He had gotten the mail that day and he gave it to me and was sitting in the car next to me. And as I read it and then proceeded to rip it up, he's like, so I guess that wasn't good news. I mean, it was just like <laughs> so mad. Oh my gosh. And again, it was just like that reinforcement of Alicia, you just don't matter. You know, you yeah. just don't matter. And I don't know if any of you watched the previous one about my dad, but like I had a whole lot of bullshit in my life from my father. So the, like this was already a major theme in my life that I wasn't good enough. And so it was just like piling on from all of these male leaders you know just like here's a here's a gold star for you like keep on keeping on read your scriptures go to church pray we'll pray for you too like good on you you know so my husband was ready to like okay where to next and i i said i i'm done i'm done like i this is ridiculous i'm done and he kind of respected that and because he recognized trying to push me just made things worse often and um so I suffered through for probably another, I want to say four to six months. And then I had another one of those moments where I was sitting in church and had like what I felt like was the spirit chastising me, telling me that I needed to go see my bishop. And I like had this internal argument with myself, but finally I was like, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> so can I stop you for just a second? I want to say two things and I apologize. First off, you're doing a great job telling your story. We're going to go, uh, a little bit longer tonight to accommodate your story. We're at the uh, half hour mark now. And let's see if we can get through the story in the next 30 minutes by the top sure. of the hour. Um, the other thing, if you could just address briefly, did you compare the response you got from Michael? Stroud. 
Stroud and his wife with the responses you were getting from church leadership? Yeah, this is like black and white difference. I mean, there was there was care and connection with um, Mike and his wife. There was no like I felt so I felt like an outsider when I was responded to from the presidency of the 70 there. It was so like I mean, even though they used all the flowery words, it was just bullshit like nobody. There was no care. There was no love. There was no, hey, we really want to help you. How can we help? You know, there was nothing. It was totally empty. Or even though Michael and I can't remember her wife, I feel bad that, or his wife, I, I feel bad that I don't remember her name. But um, even though they couldn't like fix it for me and they didn't really have all the answers, at least they cared about me. Like they genuinely were, you know, they wanted to help. Right. You, you saw that it can be done. Yeah. Yeah. You can show up and be a decent human being and acknowledge that you care and hear that somebody's struggling. Yes, yes it can be done. Unfortunately, it wasn't being done by the priesthood leadership. Yeah, no, it was not. So I interrupted you. If you could go back to where I interrupted you, which is you felt chastised or somehow moved yeah. by the spirit to go back to your bishop. Is this still bishop number? This is three. This in Homer, is bishop right? number three. Yes. So now we're in Homer, bishop number three, who I'm not going to lie. I didn't like have such a great, you know, uh, relationship with him, but I decided to go in anyway, because I thought, you know what? It's not about the person he's been called of God. So I'm going to go and believe, have faith in his priesthood authority. And so here we are. So I was sitting in his office and um, he, you know, asked me how I was doing. And I, you know, I was like, I'm not doing well. And he kept asking about my marriage. And finally, I was like, look, my marriage is great. I am not doing well. And so I then proceeded to talk to him about some of these things I mentioned in the letter and that I was having. So this is a hard one for me. I, I, at the time, at the time, I feel like I was being very blatant about like, I'm suicidal and I'm struggling with this stuff. But after reading that letter again, like, you know, just recently years after I did it, I wasn't as direct as I thought I was. So part of me will also own that I, I thought that I was saying these things, but I might not have been as clear to him as I probably thought I was being anyway, but I thought I had expressed that I was like, Hey, I was, I'm suicidal. Like how, like help me please. And essentially his response was, you know what, this is, this is tough stuff. And I don't actually have all the answers for you, but what I can tell you is that Christ does. So if you just hold on to Christ and really trust him, I believe that you'll find the help that you're looking for. And I was like, okay, okay, well, I, you know, I came in here based off of what the spirit told me. So that's clearly what God wants me to hear from this man. So I'll take it and go home and do even better. The next, actually probably wasn't, the, actually, it was within like 48 hours of me meeting with the bishop. The bishop met with my, or not met with, but like cornered my husband, probably at church or a board activity or something. And, um, basically said, so what's your wife into that's bringing this upon? Like, what's your wife doing that's causing this? And my husband was like, excuse me. And he's like, yeah, like, so just what, what's going on with your wife? And then my husband told like, there's like, my wife is doing everything she can to be, you know, he kind of told him off and then walked away. But that was his, my Bishop's response, Bishop three, his response was to, I was doing something wrong. So 
once again, I was like, well, I went through the same, this was just the same roller coaster of like, I must not be good enough. I'll try harder. Um, and then I, a few weeks went by and we had word conference coming up. So every, the state president that was in at the time, every year for the past like five years, he would come in and when he would address the Relief Society, he would, it would be gospel questions. So they basically announced in Relief Society, if any of you have questions about the gospel or anything, write it down, we'll give it to president so-and-so, and then he'll address it. And I, in that moment, I was like, well, he's asking if I have questions and sure as hell, I've got a ton of them. So, you know what? I'm just going to send him the letter. All the questions are already written out with my explanation of why I have them. So I'm just going to give him the letter. So I did. I re, re um, you know, dear, change the name. And I think I made a couple of adjustments. So it just made a little bit more sense. I don't know. And I printed it off and I delivered it. And I know he got it because my husband gave it to him at their, you know, my husband, again, was in some leadership role and was at the early morning meetings every Sunday morning. And the state president was there. So he gave it to him. So I just want to underscore this. There's no question, but that the state president received the letter that you wrote to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I saw him reading it. So because I was the gospel doctrine teacher, I often got there a little early to make sure everything was prepped so that there was, you know, things flowed well. Um, so I remember being in the cultural hall, setting up my stuff. And right as I walked out of the door, the little office he was in, because again, we're in Alaska, we, it's a small building, you have to overlap using rooms, right? So he was in a room that was normally used for Sunday school, but the door was open and I saw him reading my letter. You know, he had multiple pages. So, you know, not only that he got it, but that he read it. Yeah. Okay. So then... <laughs> We go through church. I teach gospel doctrine. He sits on the front row. That was fantastic. Oh my gosh. I sat on the front row while I'm teaching. I don't have a clue what I taught about, but I was super nervous. Then we go into Relief Society and he says, I received five questions, four of them, which I'm going to address today in class. One of them, which I'm going to address privately. And I was like, okay, like I just assumed, right? He's, it would make sense for him to address this privately with all of the stuff that I threw out there. And I can't imagine that Devils and unclean spirits is something he wants to talk openly and release society about. Right. So and there's I, a lot of private information that you shared with him about all the horrible things that you're going through. Yes. Yeah. It was quite personal. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to hang out, I guess, after church. Like he said, he wanted to address it privately. So I'll just wait because he's an hour and a half north of me in Soldatna at the sake, you know, that's where he lives. So I'll wait. So I did. I waited a whole 30 minutes after church. And then I thought, you know what? He's busy. He's probably doing temple recommend interviews. He's probably, you know, doing all the things that state presidents do. He's got my number and email address because I put it on the letter. He'll call me. So we went home. No call that night. No call that next week. I started again, just the mountain of shame, like accumulating. So my husband and mother encouraged me to reach out and remind him sound familiar? <laughs> so I did. I sent an email and I just said, President so-and-so, I, this is still something, you know, I, you mentioned that you wanted to address this privately. Like this is, I just want to, you know, reemphasize this is something that I'm still dealing with on a daily basis. You know, I'm happy to meet you wherever, like willing to drive to Soldatna and meet you at your office. Please like, just let me know your earliest convenience. Like here I am still waiting. 
absolutely nothing for a whole nother like week or 10 days or something. So then my husband gets angry and he calls the number he has, but it doesn't go to the state president. It goes to his secretary. Executive secretary. And he's like, I don't even remember what he asked, but it was, he got the runaround. He didn't actually get to talk to the state president because he was in interviews or something. And he's like, can I just verify that this is his actual email address to make sure the email I sent went to the right spot, which it did. And he's like, okay, thanks. And anyway, I think by that time he was like, he got off the phone and he's like, do you want me to email him? Do you want me to email him? I will. And I said, no, please don't. Like, the amount of shame I was like drowning in because of how people were reacting to me asking for help was horrendous. So the fact of like, now I've got to have somebody else ask for help on my behalf. Like I was just, I mean, now it seems like, no, that wouldn't have been a big deal. Why didn't you let your husband do it? But when I was in it, like the thought of, I, I thought it would, I mean, and there to tell you the truth, there were times where I wish it would have just killed me. I wish that it, then it would have just all gone away. So I think I told him not to, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll be okay. You know, go back to suck it up. So I did. And then a few months later, we find out that President Nelson is coming to Alaska for like a, some youth, big youth fireside, regional fireside. And I have this moment of like seeing the woman with the issue of blood touching the robe of Christ or the, the hem of Christ's robe, like and instantly being healed. And I was like, he's going to be the next prophet. This is what I need to do. I need to go to this regional conference. I will be able to see him there. I will have this massive miracle. So I'm hoping that you can see that I'm having these kind of like outlandish thoughts, right? I was mentally not in a good place. Can I tell you something though? Yeah. It is completely rational, reasonable, and expected within a Mormon paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Because we read about those miracles all the time. So why wouldn't they be normal? So that's what I was hoping for. And then I find out that because it's President Nelson, the only people who are allowed to go are the youth and their leaders. My husband gets to go, but I cannot go. They will not let us in. They they literally told us that there will be not guards, but like a security people at the door. If you're not on their list, you don't get to go. So I thought, well, that sucks. There goes my miracle. And then a few days before we're told that Wendy, whatever her name was at the time, I guess it technically is Nelson, but I can't remember her main name. She's going to be there and she's doing. I think a- her, I think her name before this was Wendy Dew. <laughs> well, she's pretty close. I could be wrong me. about that, but that's what I heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was there in Anchorage. She thought, well, if I'm going to be here, why don't I talk to the women? So we had like oh. 48 hours notice and I thought, Hey, that's close enough. Who knows? Maybe the prophet will know how desperately I'm suffering and the spirit will just tell him to magically come over to this thing. And anyway, like I had all these elaborate things in my head cooked up where I was finally going to get help. So I drive the four hour drive to Anchorage with a friend. I convinced somebody to come with me and um, we get there early enough. I am on the front row. We're in this big amphitheater. It was like the Anchorage um, theater building, right? I'm in this big building right on the front row and listen to her talk. I had paper. I was taking notes on everything. And when it was done, I like had this just terrible, like, cause I didn't get it. I didn't get what I was looking for. 
So then I read back through my notes and I'm like, okay, what was the spirit trying to tell me? And the one thing that stood out was going to the temple more, because if you go to the temple more, you'll be blessed. And she made this like challenge of, I promise you, if you go to the temple regularly for, for a month or something that you'll get, be blessed. And I was like, that's it. I haven't been going to the temple very often. We live four hours away. That's it. I just need to go to the temple more often. So the whole drive back home, I was just contemplating you know, how, how can I make this work? I need to get to the temple more often. So my husband comes home and of course he's like all uplifted because he got to listen to president Nelson speak, who also talked about the temple. So we're both in the same wavelength of, Hey, we probably should go to the temple more often. What a coincidence. A man a talks about the temple and his wife talks about the temple. So I asked my husband that night after we got the kids in bed and we were like kind of de deconstructing the day. I asked him, I was like, so I had this feeling while I was at the meeting that we should probably go to the temple more often. And he said, you know what I did too, when president Nelson was talking about it. And I was like, okay. Cause in my mind, I'm thinking we got to go every week. Like I want these blessings. So we're going every week, but I didn't want to be the one to say it. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to just see what my husband says. So I said, so how often is more often for you? And he was like, you know, this might sound a little out there but I kind of feel like we should try and go every week. And I was like, yes, that's what I feel too. And he's like, you know, though, but I don't know, like I could start to see, he was thinking about it's going to cost money. What are we going to do with our kids? All the things. And I said, nope, let's just commit right now. We're going to do this. We're going to make it happen because financially, yes, it's going to be a stretch. It's going to stretch us to our max, but the Lord's going to provide, right? Because we are doing his work. So he's like, okay, you're right. If we think about it, we're going to talk ourselves out of it. So for a year and a half, my husband and I drove from Homer, Alaska to Anchorage, which is anywhere from four to five hours, depending on the weather. One Every way. morning, one way. And then we would go for one session and we would get in the car and we would drive right back home for a year and a half every week. And it was not some like, you know, jump on I-15 drive. We were going through crazy mountainous terrains that were pretty sketchy on some of those drives, especially at four in the morning. And during the winter months, obviously, yeah. at least once. Yeah. So a lot of people like legit thought we were crazy because it was, I mean, I'm sure there are not, there were times where we shouldn't have gone. It was not safe, but I was like, the Lord is going to bless me because look at the sacrifice I'm making. So while we were there, because we were there regularly, they needed temple workers. And they asked, my, my husband volunteered. He's like, well, I can do this. So we go in to sit down with the temple president to like check and see if this, this is going to work. And so he talks to us and asks us some questions. And uh, he's like, well, now you just need to go meet with the state president. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And, uh, and I didn't say that, but like internally I was just dying. And he's like, so just call and schedule an interview with your stake president. As soon as he signs off on it, we'll be good to go. We'll, we'll confirm you and you can start working in the temple. Okay. So this is the same stake president that you sent the email to that you verified that he got the email that your husband called up to try and get a hold of him, only got a hold of the executive secretary. And he still hasn't responded to your email. No, we never got anything. No response whatsoever. And this is the, the stake president. You've got to have the temple recommend interview with so your husband can be a temple worker yes so i call my husband's driving home i call the secretary to make the appointment for my husband i specifically said i'm calling to make a in or set up an interview for my husband to come in and see our state president and he said oh what's it for 
And I said, it's so he can get interviewed so he can be a temple worker. And he said, oh, so it's for both of you. And I said, no, I'm not, I can't be a temple worker. I have kids at home. And he said, I know that you can't, but when you, when it, any, either of the spouses work in the temple, we have to interview both of you. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I was like, okay, whatever. So I set up the appointment and then I raved, you know, just raged to my husband about the fact that I was going to have to go and sit in the same room as this man who just totally pretended I didn't even exist. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. We went that next week to the appointment. We were sitting in the chair. The chair is in the hallway waiting for him to come out. The missionary walks out that he was in with. He walks out. My husband stands up. He shakes my husband's hand, says hello, does not acknowledge me. Doesn't shake my hand, doesn't look at my eyes, nothing. So we walk into the room, we sit down. He then proceeds to, you know, I don't know, read a scripture or something. BS is with my husband about his mission for a bit. I'm waiting for him to ask like the temple recommended interview questions, right? And then what he asks is about my, like what we do professionally in Homer. And he knew that my, that I worked, my husband didn't. And I worked in a profession that he didn't really like either. So we talked about my work and then that was it. He didn't interview my husband at all. And then he said, okay, well, thanks for coming in. And we left. And I Did cried. he say your husband has the job at least? No, it was so weird. He didn't say anything. Oh. And then I cried the whole way home. And actually to, to, to give props to my husband, we got to the stoplight because he, he's like, you know what? We got in the car. He's like, we should go back in and talk to him. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And he honored my whatever. We get to the stoplight and he's like, Alicia, I'm sorry. I can't do this anymore. He turned around. We went back to the stake, the, the stake building, but we were the last interview. So the stake president had already left. Mm. So we go home and I'm just crying the whole way thinking like, you know, again, like I just, why do I not matter enough for somebody to even acknowledge me? I mean, it was so humiliating for him to not even look at me. So my husband calls and he's like, we're dealing with this right now. He calls the secretary the next day and sets up another appointment for the next week. The stake president calls that day and is like, hey, I think there was a mistake. You're on my calendar again. I just want to verify that this was a, a like a repeat, that we, made, we just made a mistake and put it on the calendar twice. And my husband goes, no, it's not a mistake president we're, we're we're coming back in this evening and he's like oh do you do you mind like giving me a heads up about what this is about and my husband says yeah it's about the letter my, my, that my wife gave you probably six plus months ago he says okay i'll see you then <laughs> so i am like i mean my husband had to drag me there i didn't want to go i didn't want to talk about it i didn't want to even be in the same room but I thought, you know what? I'm going to have my letter there just in case, because I was still trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Because in my mind, these men are still called of God. I was like doing everything to hold on to, you know, my testimony. And, and I kept thinking of that scripture about, you know, to expand and widen your stakes, like, like that Christ goes after the one and leaves the many. Like I just, all of these scriptures were in my head. I'm like, but me, why isn't that okay for me? It's okay for everybody else, but not me. So I went to this meeting and I had my scriptures and I had the letter and I was just like prepared to kind of like answer questions because I figured he'd have some. So we get in there and it was so awkward. My, my, the first question I asked was like, did you even get the letter? Which I knew, I knew he did. But again, I'm like, but maybe I'm confused, you know, maybe I'm, you know, so he's like, I did get the letter. 
But then he threw his secretary under the bus and gave all these explanations of he should have done this. He should have done that. He didn't do this. So you didn't get contacted. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And then he also said, I even shared it with some other people and we discussed it. And I remember sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? You went and shared this really personal information with all these other men and you didn't have the decency to respond to anything that I asked? So then we just like for the next hour, we discussed this letter and I expressed myself and he kind of listened and, you know, didn't really have much to say. Um, and then he's like, but, you know, it's getting really late. So, you know, just keep keep on keeping on, essentially. And we left. And I I didn't really even know what to think. But in my mind, I'm like, OK, at least it's over. Right. At least it's just done and over with. So we go back to the temple. Sorry, go Alicia, ahead. Jeff. I just want to ask you something. Has anybody, whether it's Bishop one, two, three, or four, stake president, uh, apostle 70, has anybody mentioned two words to you yet called professional help? No. Nobody no. has suggested that maybe yeah. you should get some professional help? No one. Okay, go ahead, please. So we go back to the temple the next week and I'm finally thinking like, okay, I'm moving on with my life. And every time we would have this four, well, eight, eight to 10 hour drive, depending on the day, um, we would be listening to Michael Stroud's podcasts and we would discuss them. And so I'm finally to the point where I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm doing a little bit better. I, I have some information here that's making some sense. I'm reading some books and, you know, basically feeling like I have some sort of support, but I'm not getting any better. I just, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I, I, somebody's on my side. So we would be listening to this stuff and whatnot. So we get to the temple and the next week, um, the temple, the president guy, somebody from the presidency pulls us in the office and I'm thinking they're going to set my husband apart to be a temple worker. So we go in there and he starts like, I don't know, humming and hawing around a little bit. And he's like, you know, just for whatever reason, like we can't set you apart today. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And my husband's like, well, why not? And he said, well, your stake president still has a few concerns. And he's like, he wants to have another interview with you, meaning my husband. And he's like, really? Cause we just met with him this last week. He said, I know I got a call from him, whatever. And he said he wanted to just meet with you again. And um, so, yeah, so my husband's like, okay. And we leave and I was, and I got so mad we left the temple. So I wasn't yelling in the temple. I yelled once I got out of the temple. I was like, this is so like, he wants to interview you. It's a BS. Like he wants to interview me. This is all about me. The reason you're not being allowed to be a temple worker is because I, this is all about me. So we go back again to see the state president. And then he proceeds to berate me about being a follower of Satan and that I need to stop seeking after Satan and turn back to Christ. And he twisted every quote and every scripture that I had linked into or addressed in my letter and spun it against me. Well, so you're that, just quoting scriptures in the words of the prophets. Exactly. So that night when we got in our car and I was driving home and in the middle of that interview, actually, or whatever, I don't, who knows what to call that thing. I remember getting this like distinct feeling like this man is lying through his teeth. And I got in the car and I looked at my husband and I said, I'm just curious, how did you feel that went? And he said, I feel like he was wrong. Like, I feel like everything that he said was wrong. And I, again, I was like, great, I'm glad we're on the same wavelength. So when I was driving home 
Again, it was an hour and a half drive. So I had a lot of time to sit and think and cry some more. But that's when I started looking at all of these things and thinking, wait a minute, like, what? Like, this is when the priesthood started to fall apart for me because I thought, isn't it supposed to be about my heart? And why am I not an import, important enough to fight for? And if this man is really called of God, then why is he telling me all of the stuff that the spirit told me was true is bogus and that I'm the problem? And if he's the one lying and not actually quote unquote worthy because he's doing, he's saying what he wants to say instead of telling, you know, like I was just going all, then why do we even need this? Like, why do I even need to have a priesthood authority if President Nelson says I can go straight to God and have personal revelation? So it just started to fall apart for me. And especially knowing the way that I was treated, because I still had this really strong belief that God loved me. So if God really loved me, then what the hell is going on with all of these men? And the priesthood, there is this, this isn't true for me anymore. So that was that happened before I found out about my father. And so the final like nail that kind of hit the coffin for me was when I learned about all of the lies of my father, who maybe for those who haven't listened to the prior um, episode we did, essentially my father, you know, created a $200 million Ponzi scheme and cheated over 500 people out of loads of money and had a double life, um, had affairs with women who blackmailed him, cheated on my mom multiple times. Like he just... I could go on and on. But my father used the same tactics. He was like the priesthood authority and he had the last word and he had this connection with God. And so he used the church and his, you know, as a way to manipulate people, but also manipulate us at home. And that's when I just started realizing, like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to defend my dad for all of his lies. And I don't want to defend these men who don't care one lick about me but I keep giving them the benefit of the doubt because they're, they've got the priesthood and they're in a position that God called them to be in. And, and I just, I finally just let it just all fall to the ground. And I did try to like for a long time, figure out like, okay, there must be a way to plug these holes. But the more I started looking into it, especially when I started, I started to read um, more history, not because I was into church history, but I wanted to understand the priesthood more. And that's when I started learning wait a minute, I've been a gospel t doctrine teacher for years in multiple wards. Nobody's ever told me about the truth around the priesthood. Arana Gormilchizedek. Like, we're just telling these stories that are not actually accurate unless you actually get into the history. Like, anyway, and I just, that's when I realized, like, the priesthood, for me, I realized, like, the priesthood is just a sham. The, you know, the people that do my ordinances, how do I know they're technically worthy? And if it's all about my heart, who cares what, you know, if they're, if they are lying through their teeth and beating their wife up and drinking and doing all the things that would mean they're not worthy, but they, they lie and they go to the temple and perform my ordinances, are they still, you know, do they still count? And the answer was, well, yes, because it's about your heart. Then why do I need them anyway? Mm. Who cares? Right? So when the priesthood falls apart, I mean, that's what the church is built on, right? So that's kind of where everything fell apart for me. And as I... It took a long process to get to this next little piece because I was, you know, thrown into another major trauma with my family and in fight or flight for like another three years. But when I was finally in a place to start working on my own healing, 
I asked myself one day, how did I get here? How did I get to the point where I would be so self-loathing of myself? Because I was finally in a place where I started to see professionals, right? But it was because I finally decided that screw all of this. The only person that's going to be here for me is me. I can't depend on anybody else but me. And so when I had this moment of like reflection, looking back, I realized that my whole life, everything that the church taught me was to look outside of myself. It was never okay for me to acknowledge anything that was really happening for me. And even if I, if it was my own intuition, it was, oh, but that's the spirit who's also a male, by the way, not a woman, a man. So it was total and complete abandonment of who I was. And I realized like, that's, that's why I kept going back. I mean, I saw somewhere in the, in the comments as they were going through that somebody was like, oh, I would have left a long time ago. Like, but that's why I kept going back because I had no connection to who I was. I had completely abandoned who I was and was clinging to these truths that I had been taught that this is what would save me, that these priesthood leaders who are called of God, they're the ones, if you have a problem, they'll save you. And so when I finally made that, like, wait a minute, like nobody's here to save me because none of them actually care because it's not even real for me. It was not even real. And that's when I thought, oh, this is going to suck real bad because now I have to pick myself back up and take care of me. And so I finally got help because I walked myself into the hospital. I walked into a place and said, I need help. I'm not okay. And they finally listened because they're, that's what they're trained to do. Wow. To bring it back where we started, you got back on the horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. So I know the audience wants to know where you are now. If you can summarize that for our audience, and I'm sure some of them will, will want to call in and maybe ask you some questions, share some feelings. Sure. So I, this, my like finally decision to step out of the church, even though it kind of unraveled um, over probably a, a 12 to eight month period of time, I've been out for a year and a half and I have been actively like working on um Back in October, I finally, my mental health got so bad because I was trying to hold it all together. I finally said, you know what? I will not swear. Screw it. <laughs> and I just, I stopped trying to suck it up. I stopped trying to just be okay, even though I wasn't. And I let everything crash to the ground. And um, I, I stopped working. I basically told, you know, my husband and my clients and people in my life, like, look, I'm taking a break. I'm focusing on my mental health. And this is a whole nother story in and of itself. I had to fight tooth and nail to even get help from the people that are trained in helping. I mean, I had to fight for over a month with the doctors and the people in town to get to a place where I could get the mental health that I need because they are trained. Once you get to the point where you've tried to commit suicide or you have overdosed or you are so far into drugs and alcohol or things like that, then they are, that's what they're trained to help. But if you are not quite there, then there's not really a lot of help for you. So I fought to get into a place and I, I was able to go to a recovery home for six weeks to just honestly, to get sleep. That's the biggest thing that I did. And I had a fantastic, um, psychiatrist who got some medication to help my nervous system come down long enough to where I could actually process some things. And uh, I still go to therapy regularly and I am consciously working at um, creating the life I want because 
I left this life that I knew. And I'm sure for all of those who have left the church, understand that just free fall period of like, you don't know who you are. You don't know what's up or down. You don't, you know, it's just crazy. So my whole process for the last, you know, since October, especially has been focusing on me and staying in reality at all costs. That's my motto. I will stay in reality at all costs, even if it sucks. Um, I'm tired of the flowery lies that I was, that I got from church and that I got from my father. And I'm not going to apologize or make excuses for them anymore. I'm going to call, I'm going to call it for what it is. So I stay in reality at all costs. And I have, you know, I have a fantastic therapist that, you know, gets the whole, you know, Mormon experience and is helpful in that, in that plane. And my husband has been fantastic. So I finally had a space to finally break apart and, and people gave me some support and permission to figure out who I wanted to be and what my life wanted to be while I put the pieces back together. So I'm definitely in that. I'm still putting the pieces back together, but I can tell you, I am the happiest and healthiest mentally I have ever been in my 35 years of living. Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. I want to ask you one question. Uh, this is going to sound like I'm being facetious, but I'm actually not. Did your husband ever get the job as a temple worker? Yes, he did. <laughs> Does he still have it? Oh no, um, no. We haven't. We haven't gone back. Like the, he hasn't been back to the temple since the day we left together. The last time we went to the temple was in Arizona together, and he hasn't been back mainly because of like COVID and stuff. But there's not really a reason because we don't go together anymore. Understood. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I've been seeing a number of comments, even though I've been trying to focus on you for this episode. Uh, it's been riveting to me, and I know most of the story having heard it from you before. So let's go ahead and let's put up the phone number, which I don't have memorized like Bill Real does. Oh, it looks like Maven is joining us. Yes. Hi, Maven. Hi there. Um, so I, we've got Colby in the queue, um, so I'm going to pull him up in a little bit. But I did want to uh, say real quick before we go to him and any other callers, um, we had uh, someone in, uh, quite a few of the men in the chat have been very um, you know, awesome about Alicia and very supportive. And there's quite a few that are expressing a lot of regret about their own positions in leadership. And so I did want to bring up that part as well. Um, and I know, I know Mormon Stories had a bishop on that kind of talked about also the trauma that they get sometimes because of these stories that which they're not equipped to hear um, sometimes really traumatic stories of abuse or sexual assault, things like that. Um, and you know, and so this is another part that sometimes I, we do like pile on bishops and they do do a lot of harm. So I'm not trying to completely defend them, but at the same time, they aren't equipped for this. And they're, you know, just like any position in the church, it's a voluntold position, right? More than anything, it's an obligation and a duty. And you're not, you're a bad person if you're, you're not willing to do something like that. So I did just want to acknowledge that. And uh, I just appreciate, I guess, the, uh, um, I guess that side of it too, and the the regret and the willingness to share the regret from those who who are in this kind of positions. So, um, yeah, and RFM, anything from you on that? No, I think it's a great point you make, and I think that it bears repeating that we're not trying to make some kind of blanket condemnation of all church leaders. This was a really, really bad string of luck that Alicia ran into, and when you run into so many. Bishop one, two, three, four, state president, et cetera. You start thinking maybe it's bigger than just, you know, 
yeah. couple of bad eggs. I would hope, I would hope that in addition to any positive benefit this show might have, that perhaps if there are people in leadership, that they might take this as a cautionary tale and a way that maybe they could up their game by just acting like human beings. They don't have to lasso the moon and bring it down to the earth. All they have to do is act like they care. And remember two important words, professional help. Yeah. And if the church just even put out some sort of training, right? Like we have to have training when you're around the youth or whatever, but like if bishops even just had a training that was enough to say, hey, when you get something that's over your head, there's professionals for this. I feel like if, if one of my bishops would have been trained with just that much, so many years of suffering could have been, you know, avoided. If anybody is listening to this who is in leadership, one other idea that comes to me is that when a member comes to you and is in obvious distress or send you an email or a letter or whatever, where they are going through a bad time, you need to get on the horn right away back to them and not just wait and wait and wait and then forget about it or you don't even remember what happened. That's just ridiculous. Just get on the horn right away, talk to that person and say, look, we have resources for you and I'm going to arrange this and then freaking do it and do it then. Do it right then and get back and put these people together and then check in on them from time to time and see how they're doing. It's not rocket science. Yeah. All right. Let me uh, go ahead and pull up Colby. Um, Colby in the queue. Yeah. And then the rest of the callers, I think if I mute, I... I don't know if you'd be able to hear them. So, well, let's let's see. We'll go ahead and try it. Okay, Colby, Colby are there. you there? Hey there. Can you hear me, Colby? I can. Yes, I can. Right. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, how are you doing? Can you can you hear Colby, Alicia? Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody can hear you. I think. Great. Well, Alicia, I just wanted to thank you so much for calling in again and telling your story. I think it's a really important one. And listening to it, I just felt a lot of similarities and kinship with you. Um, different, I think different paths kind of got me to the same place as you where failures all along the chain, you know, really led me to the conclusion, like you said, that these men aren't special and that you've been taught to look outside of yourself and to reclaim that power. I think one of the things I really appreciated from your story and the reason I wanted to call in tonight was you highlighted someone who was there for you. Um, the podcaster was Mike uh, Stoddard. Is that right? Stroud. Stroud. I'm sorry. It's okay. One of the things I wanted to say since RFM's on the call is, you know, after my wife and I have left the church just this year, uh, our bishop lives right across the street from us. And he hasn't even waved at us to treat us with basic human dignity. And one of the things I want to say is that people like RFM and Maven and John DeLynn, not in a public way, like in private moments that no one else would know about, have treated me with Christ-like compassion and with love and with friendship. And so I wanted to highlight that good example from someone and just say how important those people are to find and to hold on to. 
Thank you. Thank you, Colby. I appreciate that. Of course. Just a little embarrassed, but I'll get over it. How are you feeling, Maven? Good, good. Um, I someone was just saying we want to like for people who don't know, is it okay, Colby, if I give a real quick summation of your story? Of who you are and why? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I don't want to draw away from Alicia's story, but I definitely that's if you think that's appropriate, that's fine. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Just real quick, I'll I'll go ahead and do it. Um. I'll go ahead and let you go, Colby. Though, unless you had something else you wanted to say. No. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling in. Thanks, Colby. So, so Colby, um, and you can find his and his wife's full story on the Mormon stories. Um, but this was um, Colby's story involved a well, him and his wife trying to help out in a ward where a a bishop had been found and convicted of child molestation. Um, and then Colby, I guess I shouldn't have let you go just in case I get something wrong. Um, and so Colby and his wife were trying to at least um, have the leadership. Um, address it properly or even talk to other parents of kids who's, you know, who had been around this bishop to see if there might have been more victims or to be able to at least have conversations, to give the parents the option to have these conversations with their kids. Um, and they were just kind of blocked and stymied. And it just ended up being um, really bad where, you know, of course, people who want to advocate for children unfortunately, often end up getting uh, blamed and ostracized from the community. Uh, I think the worst thing about it was um, when the stake president just kind of doubled down on discernment and saying that he felt that that bishop was called by God. Um, and then just in fairness to Colby, he has said that this, uh, this stake president has recanted that and has apologized and, you know, has gone on to, to, you know, take that back, which is really great. But, but it's still, that is how it started. So anyway, so, uh, you know, quite the failure of leadership as well for Colby. So thanks for calling in. Yeah. Thank you, Colby. Alicia. So you're not the only one with the systemic failure of leadership. Yeah. I actually, now that you make that connection with who Colby is, I listened to that whole story and just remember like, yeah, feeling so many of those same feelings and being so angry that like, there is something really wrong here. And especially like with children, it just something's gotta be done. That's just all I feel is just something's gotta be done. Cause it's unacceptable. It's just totally unacceptable. Let me go ahead and grab the next call. Um, it's going to be live, though, so I don't I haven't vetted it. Um, here we go. Does anyone ever vet our phone calls? I'm not sure. We used to. Um, so I think is this is this Pat? Yes, it is. Hi there, Pat. Go ahead. You are live. Hi, you didn't vet. So I'll try not to sound like a crazy lady. Well, first, I am so grateful for you to come and share all of this information with everyone because a lot of people don't get it. But I just want to say one time I checked myself in to the hospital and, and I had my husband notify, you know, the priesthood and that. And when I got out, I was never contacted by anyone to check in and say, how are you doing? What can we do? And nothing. You know, they didn't even, you know, they not even let me know what you can do anything. Except for one time I was out with a friend and she said, um, I can't understand why, why, people, why somebody with a good life and a good husband would be depressed. And um, then she says, um, it just makes me want to slap him across the face. Like she was really talking about me. But I'm just, I was so stunned. I usually can come up with stuff, but I was just so incredibly stunned. But the fact that nobody here, you feel like you're dying. And even if you don't get it, 
if you hear, hey, I'm going under, I need help, and people don't reach out, and, and you're the bad guy, I just don't get it. And then as to the question of why you didn't leave, at the time when I did leave, I was finally 62. And I believed that I had believed the gospel was true. And like you, I believed the priesthood was the power of God. And I deferred to the priesthood. Men are different. They're told they're great guns. They have power. They have stewardship over half the world. You know, females. But I deferred. That's what I did. And I, and I would ask my husband for counsel or my home teachers or my bishop. And wanted to get everything right. And so at 62, seven years ago, I finally left. And I'm like, hey, I made that decision. And I bought a car. And I didn't ask one man. And it was like the first time that, that I thought, okay, so now I get to find out who I am uh, out from that umbrella that tells me what I eat, wear, do, say, blah, blah, blah. And find out what I really think and what I what is my right or wrong. And so if you really drink the Kool-Aid and you believe that they have that power, you want to stay in and let that power fix you. But there's some people who are smarter and figured it just took me a really long time. But I just want to share that and just thank you so much for articulating this and letting people know that this, this stuff is real and people, you know, they're just men, and I'm, and I know that most of them are trying to do the best they can, but they are so off the mark. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Pat. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. The stories I've heard tonight don't even come close to men doing the best they can, but I'm sure the majority of them do. Well, it's all about capacity, too. Some of them don't have the capacity to be any better, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Okay, thanks Thank you again, again Pat. Yeah. And that's really such a great point because it, it, I think it really is quite different for for women in the church because of that reason. Like we are really disempowered the whole way along. Um, and I and I don't remember who I remember like, talked about this saying men because they're on the inside they they kind of know at least sometimes that that they get things wrong, and so it's a little easier for them to also maybe not take a, a leader so seriously if they feel like it's a, you know, that they're all on the inside, you know, they, they kind of know how it, you know, how the factory works, I guess, or maybe I'm, I'm mixing the wrong metaphors there, but um, you know what I mean? I don't know if RFM, if you can speak to this, cause obviously I can't, but I, I just kind of felt for, for Pat and, and, you know, 62 years of just, yeah, really deferring to men for everything. Cause that's what we're taught to do. I, I get it, but I'm also really happy for her that, you know, she went out and, and, you know, and a car is a really big purchase. So that is, it's a big thing to do if, you know, if you've never done anything yourself. So um, that's really awesome. Um, we can take the next caller or you, sorry, go ahead, Arifim. I'm thinking that maybe some of the things that Pat said might've resonated with you, Alicia. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely resonated. And I think Again, like there's a part of me that wants to give all these male leaders like a benefit of the doubt, but I agree with you. Like they're just, they're, if that's their best, it's definitely not good enough. So, but I, I, Pat, I love that you went out and bought a car. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it was something bright and fabulous and made and all the heads turned. Yeah. And red. Right. <laughs> Are we ready for the next call? Yes. And maybe, um, well, I tell you what, uh, 
we are about two hours into this okay. gig. There's two on the line. I, I can go ahead and, and close Let's the do line. the last two, okay? okay? We'll just have two more calls. The people are on the line. All right. Thank you, Maven. Okay. I'm pulling them up. Hello there, caller. Hello. We're live. Hi. Yes. Um, thank you so much for having this show um, and highlighting mental health. I resonate so much um, with many aspects of the story, and I just want to thank Alicia for sharing this. I think sometimes, I, not sometimes, many times it can be helpful when someone's vulnerable about their experiences to help other people who experience I think, uh, a similar situation. And I know... Um, hey, call it real quick. Can we get your me, name? I, oh, yeah. Crystal? Okay, thank you, Crystal. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I have a son with some significant um, special needs and mental health issues attention, and unfortunately, our family has also um, experienced, experienced some death by suicide. Um, so if it's okay, I'd like to give out the suicide hotline number just for anyone who might have been triggered tonight. Yes. Um, that's 800-273-8255. Um, and... Um, as Alicia was talking and as I had gone through a similar mental concern that led me to a moment of realization that the church wasn't the best entity to help me through that. Um, uh, I, um, I just thank Alicia so much for sharing this. I know for me what was helpful is I was presented with something called the drama triangle. Um, which has three aspects to it. There's the rescuer role, the victim role, and the persecutor role. What and was the last one, Crystal? Therapy. Persecutor. Oh, persecutor. So I heard the victim role, the rescuer role, and the persecutor role. Yeah. Okay. Um, and what I did is I had wrote down how I was either in one of those roles um, or being victimized in a role, and that's kind of what led me to seek mental health outside the church, because I realized the church was taking so much from me as a woman and a mother. Um, they were taking my time, my energy, and as I'm listening to Alicia, that's what was happening to her, and it was so empowering once I, you know, empowered myself to make decisions for myself, instead of allowing the church to help me through a process that really the church is not equipped to handle whether one thinks it's true or not, the church is not equipped to handle these um, these issues. Also, I should say I am a mental health professional. Um, I'm working on my independent license. I've been in um, the social work field for about 20 years. And what I find concerning about the church is the church isn't speaking for someone to have their own identity um, or their values. And unfortunately, from my experience, the church therapist they're always giving the church responses to things. Whereas a true therapist, and it's in the ethics, would allow the individual to come to terms with their own values. And um, so I also wanted to highlight that I recently read the Church's Self-Reliance Manual around mental well-being. And in there it highlights, you might want to choose a mental health professional or therapist that would be willing to um, communicate with your bishop. And I just think the church is really overstepping its its role in someone's life with narratives like that. So anyway, I'm just calling in because this resonated so much with me. Um, and I wanted to thank Alicia. Thank you so much. Thank you, Crystal. Um, by the way, 
We're going to have one more caller. Is that right, Maven? Can I ask? We've got 443 people watching the show, now 440. It jumps up and down. It was almost up to 500. I can't help but notice that there is not a concomitant-like number. In other words, you got 11 likes on the show with over 400 people watching. I mean, what is going on with that? Do you hate it that much? <laughs> it's probably because Bill isn't here. If Bill were here, it would be way up there. But during this last caller, if I could just see like this tally run up on the likes and the hearts, that would be just so, so wonderful for me personally. There's 12. I feel like I'm doing a telethon. <laughs> so if we could have the last caller, I'll keep one eye on those likes. Now it's up to 13. Keep it up. And who's the next caller, Maven? Uh, to bounce off of, I think it was Colby was saying his wife um, was studying, I think, psychology at BYU and uh, that there are like textbooks um, and materials that basically teach them to do the same thing. I think that's what I was seeing. So basically um, people come to you with uh, mental health issues and you need to read the scriptures and uh, pay your tithing and go to church and fulfill your callings and go to the temple as often as possible. Is that what you're saying? Basically, I guess I, I haven't seen the materials myself, but maybe maybe someday we can. Um, so here's the next caller. Last caller. Can we go ahead and get your name? Yeah. Hi, this is Justin Rich. Hi, Justin. I'm a yeah, I'm Justin's calling the in. moderator Thank you so like, much over uh, at um, the Mormon Stories Discord. Sorry, that Mormonism Live also participates in. Oh, that Justin. How you doing, Justin? Oh, uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, Maven's also an admin there too now. So, uh, yeah, she's coming up in the world. <laughs> I, oh man, she's she's classing up the place. Um, <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much, Alicia, for for being so vulnerable and sharing uh, your experience uh, as being somebody else who has uh, really had to work on um, his mental health. Uh, it, it's just so good to. To, to see an example where uh, just just not feel alone. Um, I know in my journey, uh, I struggled with OCD, and it started to manifest when I was on my mission. And I went through like 18 months of just like absolute hell. And my mission president only he didn't like say, "Well, maybe we should get a psychologist." You just like create yourself and go to work. And so I. It, it wasn't until like they switched them out and I had a, a, a totally different mission president for like the last six months where his wife was, was able to like really look at the fact that like I couldn't go out and to, to, to work because I was just so anxious. And she was like, hey, I think something might be going on. And so I really it, just reflecting on your experience, it really resonated with me because it, it really pointed out that the church, even though will tell people and we teach that, you know, it's, it's the work, uh, it's God's work and glory to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. It becomes, it becomes painfully obvious just through my experiences and hearing experiences like yours, that really the mission is to just grow itself. Um, and, and so that's just kind of my lived experience. And so I, I just really wish that that was kind of, more the selling point when people would serve missions and do these things that this isn't about helping people. It's, it's really about growing the business. Agreed. So anyways, I just want to say thanks for, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, Justin, in. for calling in. So I, I want to, this reminds me. All of, right. Oh, thanks, Justin. Um, on my mission, the, uh, I mean, obviously it's really common for there to be, 
depression and, and that, you know, was a common reason for people to go home. And I remember it was, in a zone conference, the mission president uh, kind of was talking about it. And he, and it's, I'm, I'm amazed now he said the quiet part out loud is this was kind of one of those moments um, where he said that we, the reason why, you know, we don't want to send somebody to uh you know, a psychiatrist, especially like one that's not LDS, because they'll be like, well, tell me what you do. And when you explain missionary work and, you know, the time that you get up and the times you go to bed and all the, the stuff you do in between, well, then, of course, they're going to say, well, no wonder you're stressed out or depressed. Like, it's you got to stop this missionary work, you know. And and so then he and he went on to talk about, like, why we have, you know, the mission, um, I guess, that therapist i guess that, that's kind of over the whole mission and you know at the time i just remember like, totally agreeing with him and being like yeah yeah secular therapy they don't get it they don't get like what important work we're doing you know and 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 they absolutely would totally focus on the wrong thing you know <laughs> if a if a missionary goes to them and that's why like, we do things the way they do and and now it's on this side of it it's just kind of like uh, how, that that was a clue that that was a clue i missed anyway I thought you were going to say the therapist was going to hear all the stuff you do on a mission and say, you're crazy. I mean, <laughs> you know, especially like paying to do it, you know, oh, it kind yeah. of adds on top of it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Can I'm I make a comment? I'm going to go ahead and hop off. I'll let you guys finish out the show. Yeah. We'll give you the last word. Absolutely. Alicia, please. The floor is yours. Yeah. I was just thinking like, um, you know, to follow up with what Maven said, when you're in it and doing, whether it's a mission or even like trying to reach perfection inside of the church, you know, there is that like thought, like, oh no, this is what we do. And like she said, like, oh, a secular therapist wouldn't get it. But one of the most um, profound moments for me when I was working on through healing, like I kept convincing myself that like, um, again, that I wasn't good enough. And really, if I could just do better, it would I would have been better. And my therapist that was not LDS basically said, you know, just totally acknowledge that like everything that you're experiencing, all the stuff that you're feeling, the depression, the anxiety, all of your PTSD symptoms are a total norm, like a totally normal human response to everything that you've experienced. And it wasn't because I was some crazy person. It wasn't because, you know, I couldn't do enough. Like literally my brain responded to an immense amount of stress and changed because of it. And that is a completely normal human reaction to going through hard things like that. And so I just want to like express to, you know, anybody that's listening that has experienced any form of mental illness, like there's a reason for it. It's not because you're crazy. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you can't hack it. It's not because you haven't read enough scriptures or gone to the temple enough. It has nothing to do with that. If you're struggling, it's because your brain is having a normal reaction to stress in because you are a human being and there is absolutely no shame whatsoever in getting the right help for you. And I can say that I've seen multiple therapists and some are fantastic and some are not. And you have the ability and the right to be able to decide what is helpful for you and what is not. And for me, that was challenging because again, going through that like line of authority inside of the church, feeling like I have to listen to a male priesthood leader, like when it comes to your health, especially your, well, any health, mentally, emotionally, physically, anything, like you have the right to decide what is right for you because it comes inside of you. Like you are the one that gets to make the decision about what's happening in your body and nobody else gets to tell you otherwise. So I just, you know, want to own that, acknowledge that, that like those experiences are human. They're totally normal and there's nothing wrong with you. 
Thank you so much. I can't imagine that having been said better and especially coming from you. Again, Alicia, thank you for coming on the show, for sharing your story, for your courage in doing so. Your vulnerability and your willingness to do this, I think is gonna help a lot of people and probably already has as they've watched the show and will be helping thousands of others who watch it in the future. So thank you again. You're so, welcome. Thank you. So next week, I'll let you get outside and enjoy that noonday sun up there in the last. That's right. <laughs> but uh, you can take a swim. Um, but uh, till next week, when hopefully Bill Real will be back from North Dakota with his brand new spanking pedicure. We'll say goodnight to everybody. And please, everybody, be safe and be good. Talk to you later. Good night. <laughs>